It's time to lock in. The most amazing, sensational, dramatic, exciting, thrilling finish. Live from Mobile, Sports Radio 105.5 WNSP presents 99 yards away. Win this game for one another. The final drive with Corey Labonte and Nick Wiggins. Do your job and play together. The final drive. Live on 105.5 FM and streaming on the Sound of Mobile app. I cannot believe it! Welcome to a Monday edition of the Final Drive here on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty joined by Nick Wiggins, and we're excited that you've allowed us to be part of your Monday afternoon. And, of course, if you have not downloaded the WNSP Sound of Mobile app, you need to make sure that you download this free app to any Android or Apple device that you may have because, boy, oh, boy, let me tell you, when the app is popping, it's popping, and it's right around the time in football season, whether it's high school on Friday nights, whether it's college football, Alabama, Auburn, South Alabama, whether it's NFL football, whether it's any other sport in general that you want to talk about or hear us talk about or you want to chime in, again, we take your constructive criticism on the app. We take your calls at 251-694-1055. That's one of the great things about being a local sports station here at WNSP 105.5. We're able to interact with all of our listeners near and far we're able to go ahead and hear what you have to say as well but if you don't download that free app that's that free sound of mobile app what are you waiting for nick wiggins gotta let the people know man the sound of mobile app is where it's at that's right look on friday nights if you're looking for scores and you're and you're listening to that you know game of the week that greer's market game of the week we are giving up-to-date minute-by-minute updates of every score around the county. Because, look, sometimes those high school scores can be hard to find. But we've got them all right there. You can keep up-to-date with everything that's going on. You can hear what people are saying about the current game that's going on that you're listening to or this past Friday, you know, watching on ESPN. But, look, the app's the place to be. And if you're not there, then you're square. But, look, speaking of the game last night, what what a game. What a series of games to kick off this high school football season here at WNSP. But that Saraland Lipscomb game, man, goes to o- Lipscomb forces overtime. Saraland, they score. It's looking like, oh man, here we go. We're gonna have a triple overtime, a shootout. Man, it's gonna be tough because Lipscomb scored on that very first play in overtime. But then what happens? Special teams, man. You got to hit the field goal. Lipscomb kicker, he missed the field goal. And you could tell he was real beat up about it. And you hate for it to end that way. But Sarah Land ended up squeaking out the win. And, I mean, good for them. Everyone looked good. I mean, there was you had plenty of storylines there. It was 18-14. They tried to convert on, like, fourth and one or fourth and inches, something like that. He holds the ball out to try to advance. They slap it out, and they run that thing back for a touchdown. And that really, uh, for me, I thought that's where it was going to kind of wrap up and potentially end. But credit to Lipscomb, man. They didn't give up. They stormed back. They they didn't have, like, a great offensive game. Their quarterback, like, at one point was 5 of 17. But they looked like they wanted it. And just it's unfortunate that that 
that field goal kick couldn't, couldn't go through the uprights because I know that those Saraland fans were they wouldn't have minded a couple more overtimes because that was a really fun and entertaining game. It really was. And when you look at the fact that Sarah Land, Alabama, being on national television on the big brand of TV to where you have over 10 collegiate prospects being spotlighted and highlighted. And then for if you set your DVR from seven to 10, thinking, OK, we'll see a three hour high school game. The DVR cuts off at 10 o'clock, and you're not able to see the fantastic finish because, again, being at Lad People Stadium myself for the Mary G. Montgomery Williamson game, of course, we did have it streaming on our iPad and had another iPad tuned up and listening to Michael Bronner and Brian Gennard on the call. But you really, when, when you pay, it was worth the price of admission mm -hmm. for a high school football game, and it was fun to see all the dominant performances. If you're Lipscomb, you're 0-2, losing to IMG Academy and losing to the Saraland Spartans, but it's nothing to hold your head down about. I, I think that it's just an outstanding atmosphere with the LED lights that are flashing when there's a score for Saraland. It, it really gave you a great Friday night football vibe, but you ultimately feel for the kicker, the young man from Lipscomb, and, and being consoled immediately by his teammates. Yeah. And that's what you love to see. You, you, you would have liked to have seen it gone to overtime, but when you have these elite athletes that are being showcased by ESPN, it's what makes high school football fun and all about. That's right. I mean, look, you had the top cornerback in Tennessee who was matched up against Ryan Williams all night, and look, did he still end up having nearly 100 yards and a touchdown? Yeah, but look, it was a tough battle. Nothing came easy. Uh, K.J. Lacey, they went for two, a two-point conversion. He goes to catch it off a pass from Ryan Williams, doing a little roll reversal there. And he tweaked something, pulled something in his leg, and he had to he limped off. And you could tell he was in a lot of pain. They didn't end up getting the two-point conversion because of that. He falls into the end zone. and But look, he came back, man. That's like something out of a movie. Dude came back, and they he led the comeback, and they scored right away. And, you know, he threw that really bad pick six. Um, but, they, you know, they never quit. The defense showed up. The offense showed up when it needed to. So... Good for Sarah Land and good way to represent yourself on the national stage like that. Absolutely. And what I want to talk about as far as, you know, Mr. Football, Ryan Williams, as a sophomore, wins the award and, and, and is one of the nation's elite athletes across the board. And, of course, he does wind up having a fairly decent night. You do get a chance to see his explosiveness, seven catches for 88 yards. Not only that, Nick. Across the state of Alabama, when you're looking at high school football, you, you when you go watch a high school football game, and I've been doing that since I was a, a baby. My, my mom and dad or my folks would take me to enjoy a high school football game on a Thursday night or a Friday night. And you look at all these little cities and counties to where they close down your one red light type city or, or town and everyone in the county or in that town come out to watch Friday night football. That's the place where you normally feel the safest 
that's where you normally feel like you're going to get a total integration of communities, of people, of just going out and enjoying two and a half to three hours of the band, the cheerleaders, the entire community, the football players, everyone coming together. This week in the state of Alabama, and not only in the state of Alabama, across the country, I, I'm going to say this. The, the, the crap's got to stop. The BS has to stop because when we've become so desensitized to where when I broadcast the game on MCPSS Television Network on Saturday, and, of course, there were three other instances in the state of Alabama, the one in which a coach comes out of the press box and tackles a 16-year-old who has a weapon. Now, imagine being at that game to where you're the coach or you're the opponent or you're just sitting in the stands and you see a coach come out of the press box, the Hueytown-Ramsey game. You have a 16-year-old armed with a pistol. Don't know how he got it in the game. But bottom line is an adult who is on the coaching staff tackles him to the ground until resource officers can get there. That's not what you want to see when you have a four or five or six-year-old sitting in the stands. That's right. Watching their big brother or whatever, you know, on the field. No, nah, man. You, you go to high school events wanting and knowing that you're safe. Now, I'm going to speak on what happened on Saturday for Blunt versus Viger. Mm. Because for the folks that are listening that don't know, I'm very passionate about high school athletics, high school sports. And I've been a part of two shootings that have occurred while I've been broadcasting high school football on live television. Part of two of them. Seen the results of it. Seen the ramifications of it. What happened on Saturday, Blunt versus Viger, there was no shots fired. There were no guns in the stadium. But because of what has happened in society, Nick, sometimes we become so desensitized and so programmed to where in 2023, if someone yells he's got a gun, the first thing people are going to start to do is run. But an altercation, a fight, an old-fashioned fist fight to where when I was growing up, that's how you handled your business. You handled your business through a fist fight. And I know for a fact, I don't care how many stadiums I went to on a Friday night, even on Saturdays in college and even in the NFL, you see drunk folks throwing haymakers at one another in NFL games. That's right. So I don't want to hear and say it only happens in high school. No, it doesn't. It happens when in college and the NFL when you see people intoxicated, right? But in these high school games, when I was growing up, you saw kids fighting the concourse area because it was neighborhood stuff that they would bring to a, a public setting in a football game, and they'd throw hands. But the safety issues, when people are so desensitized that both teams drop to the ground for fear, for fear, not even no gun anywhere in sight, but because of what has happened and the bad rap in society that has gotten, right, it, it, it's unacceptable. Well, yeah, and look, you can you can sympathize with those people because you see all these shootings happening across the country, 
And so whenever you see the person next to you starts to get a little uneasy and they start freaking out, you're going to freak out too. Every it, it, It's a snowball effect. Whether there's a gun or not, like you said, if, if someone yells gun, everyone's going to start running. And rightly so. Like, you don't want to be like, ah, nah, y'all are tripping. I bet it ain't real. And then all of a sudden it actually is, right? It is a shame that it is coming to these high school events. I am curious, though, what's the solution? Because anyone can – now we're all uneasy, right? Everyone's on pins and needles. Some people are like, I don't even want to go to the game just in case something happens. I don't even want to go to the grocery store, right? We see it can happen anywhere. So I don't know how you stay prepared, stay ready to stay safe while also not being ready to potentially panic and freak out at a moment's notice. I don't know what the solution to the issue is. And I'm sure, you know, that's what every politician in America is trying to figure out the solution to these issues. But I I think the solution is one that was handled. You continue to have plenty of security, which the MCPSS had plenty of. Plenty of police officers, which they had plenty of. And again, it's because of the unfortunate and tragic situations that have happened right here in our own community that have created a sense of panic and chaos. Right. Because normally, again, Nick, I grew up going to high school football games. Our listeners watched high school football games. You didn't have to worry if a fight in the stands broke out. It was exactly that. It was just a fight in the stands. If a fight broke out in a concourse, it was that. It was just a fight. You didn't have to worry about there being any weapons and especially bullets being thrown or or, or shot into the air. But you look at across Sparkman and Hazel Green in North Alabama, Sparkman and Hazel Green, their game is disrupted because of social media tensions. The game is resumed, but because the same exact situation to where someone puts falsehoods out there that there's a weapon or a gun in the stands, which there was not at Sparkman and Hazel Green. There was not at Blunt versus Viger. You could go into the Blunt versus Viger game or the Sparkman versus Hazel Green game and feel as safe as you can anywhere, right? But when you look at the Hueytown Ramsey, somehow or another a young 16-year-old got a weapon into it and was handled by a head coach. Now, I will go as far as to say this too, Nick, that – Coaches have responsibilities, and those responsibilities, we'll talk about those coming into the next break. You should never put your hands on a player. That's right. It might have been acceptable in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, but even in the 90s. But this is a new age and generation, and we're going to talk about a high school coach and Rush Probst who decided to discipline his son the way he felt he needed to discipline him, as well as an Atlanta coach punching one of his own players in the gut. It's been an interesting week one of high school football uh, for sure. You know, you want to only focus on the positive, the games and all the students, but... You know, the negativity, it floats to the top, man. It does. But I will say this. I enjoyed Thursday, Friday, and Saturday football from a high school standpoint. And, of course, we got our dose of college football on Saturday. But we'll talk a little bit more about some things that went on at some of the football games we were able to watch and witness here along the Gulf Coast and nationally as well. You're listening to The Final Drive here on WNSP 105.5. 
Hi, this is ESPN founder Bill Rasmussen, and you're listening to WNSP Mobile. Welcome back to the final drive. And look, we're talking a little high school football. The good, the bad, and the ugly, if you will. And this is it. In big picture, not the wor- the worst thing like we were talking about in the last segment, but you know it's still something you don't want to see. We got two examples up first. You know, Rush Probst. There was an altercation at his game, his first game there at Pell City, and his son was getting involved in that altercation. John David Probst and Rush Probst. He he snapped, man. He took his headset and he threw it at his son in it you know, basically exploded on his helmet. And that that's what ended the altercation. Everyone saw Rush Probst, you know, spike a headset into his son's helmet, and everyone kind of backed away like, oh, snap, I, I don't want that to happen to me. And look, like, coaching your son, I imagine, is difficult. You're either going to come off like you're too easy on him and you're showing favoritism, or you're going to come off like you're too hard on him and you're practically bullying the kid. Now, Rush Probes did end up losing that game, but look, the team he's coaching now, they only won one game last year, and they barely lost, so can you count it as a moral victory? Maybe yes, I don't know, but Rush Probes basically said, I'm going to discipline my kid the way that I want to. It's my son. Now, Corey, you've coached before. I don't know if you have experience coaching your own kids or not, but do you feel that maybe, all right, Rush, you can discipline your own kid how you want, but right now you are coaching him, and you need to coach everyone the same. Have no problem with disciplining yours. Now, it's one thing if it's an assault, but to throw a headset, I mean, Listen, is that technically assault? If he would have thrown a headset at another kid that wasn't his own, now all of a sudden that that's assault. Be a lot different. That's assault. But but for yours, I, I think that in in the society that we're in in 2023, how you discipline your child because I know growing up in my era, you got in trouble and you got whooped three times before you got home. You'd get a whooping at school, and sometimes the neighbors would get you because they heard what happened and then what happened when you got home. So how you discipline yours, again, it takes a village, right? No problem with rush probes. The hardest thing to do as a former coach myself is to have and to coach your own child. And sometimes you coach them harder. Sometimes you coach them softer. But at the same time, you see so many coaches – you have to know your son or daughter. Right. You have to know how hard you can push them. You have to know that fine line. And Rush, he, he knows what the line is with his son. He knows what's in order and what's not in order. Now, do I expect Rush to throw a headset at anyone else besides his own? No, because he's frustrated that his son was getting ready to get into an altercation right. and to a fight. So I would much rather you throw it at my child if it's my child. Mm-hmm. I'm the father. You're the son, right? Mm -hmm. Look, I'm going to snatch you up and keep you from doing something stupid. And if throwing a headset at you is going to keep you from going out there getting an altercation, Rush did what he needed to as a parent first instead of a coach. Yeah, I feel like, you know, you're at this game. Cameras are on you. Everyone's watching. 
you have to act accordingly the same way every you would with every other player. And I think if maybe things did get out of hand and your son did get into that altercation, then maybe you crack the whip, you know, so to speak, at home behind closed doors. I don't think that you show your parenting hand when you're playing a coach's game. You're not on that sideline as dad. No one else is looking at you, you know, saying, hey, daddy, rush, whatever. They're all saying, coach, probes, yes, sir, no, sir. And your son is looking at you the same way. Your son's not looking at you saying, hey, what, what are we getting for dinner tonight? No, he's saying, what, what player are we drawing up here? Where do I need to be positioned? So I feel like you can't blend that line because it's like you just said, like, you got to draw the line at assault. But if you did it to another kid, it is assault. Right? It is. That parent's going to say, you can't throw a headset at my son, but Rush isn't going to say that to himself. So I, I'm i going to say I, I did not think that that was a good look at all, especially week one at your new school. I, I just don't think that. Uh, well, is it worse than, than on seven on seven saying F you to the, to the opponent? I don't. Look, Rush Probst is an interesting guy. We all know that, right? We all know what he's done. But in this instance specifically, I just feel like you ha there has to be another way that you get you prevent your son from getting into that altercation without making that big performative. Because, look, here we are talking about it on the show right now. If he would have found any other way to go about it, that doesn't become a big news story, you know, across AL.com. So. But the other instance that you showed me well, where was that atlanta was that yeah talking? it was in atlanta what what you have is at atlanta it's mays high school versus douglas county mays high school versus douglas county and atlanta high school assistant coach punched one of his own players in the stomach on the sidelines and by doing so the young man balled over you could see him be knocked out of wind it's already hot everywhere they're outside, they're playing in the game, and this coach punches them in the stomach. This coach has, assistant coach has been immediately removed, and he has been charged with simple battery and assault. And, of course, his coaching license will be revoked, and he won't have an opportunity to be on anyone else's sidelines. But when you do see an assistant coach put his hands on the players. Now, again, I won't put you in this light. What that coach did, you can't, even if it was his own son, yeah. because he did it in the public eye, and in this situation, it wasn't his own son. It right. was one of his own players that he punched in the stomach. And we're talking about Mays High School versus Douglas County in Atlanta, Georgia. It's gone viral, continues to go viral. And it's unacceptable, and, and that coach belongs in jail because that is assault. Now, let's say Rush Probst, on the flip side of that, instead of throwing a punch at his son, he goes ahead and snatches his son to the ground because we've seen the same instances occur. It's not the first time that a coach has gone off on his son or a coach has gone off on their daughter in a public setting. Mm -hmm. And what it is, it's just parenting out loud now. But who, who's right or who's wrong by saying you can't put your hand on your own child? You should never touch anyone else's child, as seen in this video in Atlanta, Georgia, by this high school coach. But 
Who is it to the public to tell you how to do things, especially in the heat of the moment on the sideline, right? Your discipline, yours. Rush Probst, discipline his. Would he grab him to the ground or grabbed or yanked his face mask right. and turned it sideways? That's his son. I don't see a problem disciplining your child, especially in the heat of the moment. Yeah, I just think when all eyes are on you, all these kids are looking at you, you're their leader. Like, look, I've got many a spanking as a kid, right? <laughs> all right, hey, you know, we're in the Applebee's. Hey, let's go step in the parking lot real quick. I've been there. But I feel like if you're in the position of you got 50 kids looking at you, hey, show us leadership, show us guidance, how are we going to handle this? And then you're throwing a headset at your son and cussing him out and losing your cool. I mean, they lost the game. You can't say he plays favorites. <laughs> can't yeah, accuse him right. of playing favoritism. I mean, that's right. I don't know. It's 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 a it's a tricky situation. But I think you got to separate your parenting from your coaching, especially when it comes to being disciplinary in that type of way in game one in front of everybody. But look. Let's get out of high school. Let's move to Saturdays. We're going to talk some Alabama Crimson Tide with Tony Sukas of Tide Illustrated. Nick Saban, what's that depth chart looking like? He's not going to tell you, but let's see what Tony has to say. Hi, I'm Joe Godfrey. I'm a big fan of 105.5 WNSP Sports. Welcome back to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Nick Wiggins, and it's game week, not week zero. It's game week for Alabama, for Auburn, for South Alabama. We were able to wet our whistle with a little college football this weekend, and, of course, a lot of high school football on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well. But one thing that I thought I was going to be able to go ahead and double down and guarantee was the fact that we were going to be talking with Tony Sakalis today about a depth chart coming out of Tuscaloosa. And for the first time in Nick Saban's coaching career at Alabama, none was provided. And Tony Sakalis, the managing editor for Tide Illustrated, he was there today. He can kind of let us know what's up with that, Tony. <laughs> we kind of got tipped that we weren't going to get one last week. And so it, it sure enough, the first time in the Nick Saban era, we uh, we don't have a depth chart uh, on the Monday heading into the uh, first game week. But, uh, you know, I mean, it is what it is. I think we'll find out sooner or later uh, what, what Alabama's depth chart is. I think we entered uh, the week kind of knowing a lot of the positions. So uh, I guess it adds a little bit more mystery heading into the rest of the week. A little bit more mystery there at quarterback and – linebacker and offensive line and defensive line and special teams. So there's mystery everywhere for the Alabama Crimson Tide. But as they prepare for this game week and you listen to Nick Saban's press conference, what, what were you or what are you willing to guarantee? Because, again, I was going to guarantee a depth chart today on the show. But coming out of the press conference, what are you willing to guarantee? 
know. It kind of seems like Nick Saban uh, revealed his, a little bit what what to expect in the secondary. Looks like Jalen Key and Caleb Downs will be the two safeties. Those are the first two to come out of you know Nick Saban's mouth when he was talking about the safeties. I would expect Malachi Moore to start at star, and then you know obviously uh, Coy McKinstry and Terry and Arnold at the two cornerback spots. So uh, you know that was a little bit of a depth chart, maybe like, indirectly. I think Saban kind of hinted at that. Um, you know, he didn't give away much, but I think coming out of it, maybe that's one of the things you could pull from that press conference. So Nick Saban doesn't provide a depth chart. We don't have, you know, we don't know who's starting at the most important position, quarterback. How uneasy does that have you feeling for Alabama this year, or are you thinking that maybe this is Nick Saban's big master plan and not revealing the depth chart is going to prove to be better for the players and the team in the long run? Yeah, I think he just had a lot of, uh, I guess, distractions. I think he, he dealt with a lot of drama after releasing this depth chart last year. And so he just got he just said he wasn't going to do it again and, and not have to go through that. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it reflects on, you know, anything alarming in terms of how he feels about the team or anything. I think it's more just the frustrations he dealt with last year, Um and kind of maybe trying to avoid that. Well, if you look as far as from a running back position for the Alabama Crimson Tide, again, plenty of depth there. And, of course, with it being game week, Tony, I, I thought this last week, and I thought this going back to spring practice, that Jalen Milrow will have an opportunity here to master this offense versus Middle Tennessee and to show that he has mastered this offense if you're looking to kick off on Saturday and when 630 rolls around at Bryant Denny Stadium what shocking scene do you think you will see because Nick Saban said look he didn't put out a depth chart because he doesn't want to create animosity in the locker room he doesn't want the fifth string guy to know that he's the fifth string guy and he doesn't want any other distractions but those distractions are coming in week number two with Texas anyway so what's the question again? As far as the depth chart and Nick Saban having an opportunity to clarify some things moving forward and, and really kind of a cloak and dagger mentality. Do you think that with him doing this this way that it will keep him from having to deal with players, social media-wise, the clutter that can go forward in week number two preparing for Texas? Yeah, maybe that's the, I mean, that's the hope, right, is that he deals with less drama. I mean, there's a lot of, I don't know, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot in the NIL slash transfer portal day and day and age. And so, you know, I think he's just trying to limit that as much. Um, and so maybe he has to deal with less drama from that. But I, you know, on the same hand, I think most of the – I think he even kind of mentioned it in his response. Most of the team kind of knows who the starters should be. They know, you know, who is going to be, you know, they've been practicing, you know, basically with the depth chart already. I mean, I'm sure that there's been a few switches throughout practice. But, I mean, for the most part, players already know that. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, you know, for, for Alabama's sake, I, you know, I hope it, it, it produces better uh, results for them. I mean, uh, maybe there'll be a benefit out of all this, but but yeah, I, uh, um, I'm not quite sure. Do you think that Nick Saban might just kind of be 
waiting till this Middle Tennessee game where he knows he's going to be able to play a lot of that roster and a lot of those starters and backups to maybe really, I guess, say finalize, quote-unquote, who he's going to ride with the rest of the year? Yeah, I think it's going to still be fluid. Um, you know, he, he has made it a big point of, you know, if he's going, like, that the depth chart's not set in stone and that, like, you know, you will see some movement. And, that, you know, there, there's some guys that are still going to be fighting through spots from this Middle Tennessee game. But, uh, so, I mean, yeah, I, I expect there to be some, some movement. And, you know, I, I think we'll probably know that the real depth chart probably somewhere around the, the South Florida game. Yeah, I think that that's a good one. The shocking aspect that I was asking you about a little while ago is 6.30, Bryant-Denny Stadium, when kickoff is there, halftime has concluded in the end of the game, what do you think will be asked about the most to Nick Saban? Uh, probably the, the easy question is the performance of his quarterbacks. And I know he didn't comment really on whether or not he play, plans to play multiple quarterbacks. I would be absolutely shocked if he doesn't play multiple quarterbacks against Middle Tennessee State. So I think that I expect both of them to do well, or maybe even, you know, it could be three, you know. But, like, I, I think his comments on that, I think, is going to be the, the, the biggest, uh, I guess, headline coming out of Middle Tennessee State. Because I don't expect Alabama to, to struggle at all. Uh, I think that, you know, when you look at – I think both of these quarterbacks are – as many quarterbacks as Alabama use, users should be able – they should all be able to move the ball against Middle Tennessee State. So I think you're going to be nitpicking the performances and seeing how certain quarterbacks did in certain situations. And you're going to want Nick Saban's comments on that. I don't necessarily think he's going to give away too much heading into Texas, but I think that's going to be the thing, you know, I could almost bet on being asked. I mean, for all these big question marks that Alabama's facing, Nick Saban sure is coming off pretty cheery. I mean, it looks like he even got that new Just for Men coloring in that hair with that new cut. I mean, he looks good. But I'm curious, Tony, what is your personal expectations of Alabama this season? Where where do you think they're going? Are we going back to the playoffs? I think they definitely have a shot. I mean, look, all you need is competent or slightly above average uh, play from the quarterbacks, and I think they have the di the different pieces from there uh, to to really make things go on offense. I don't think this team's going to lean on its quarterback regardless of who wins the starting job. I think it's going to lean on the offensive line, the rushing game, and then I think that you know the quarterback will have enough weapons and and you know should I mean given the talent Alabama has to work with should have enough uh, talent himself to to move the ball through the air as well. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a one-dimensional offense or anything like that, but I do think it's probably going to lean more on the ground game. Um, and, and so if Alabama, I guess, can just have a, a decent quarterback, everything else about this team could be elite. And who knows, maybe the quarterback develops into an elite player as well. I just think early on, if you can just survive having a new starting quarterback, the rest of this roster is what you would consider a contending roster. So I think Alabama will have a shot, but then if the quarterback position doesn't materialize, then of course I don't think many teams could overcome. You know, I don't think many teams can make the playoff. It doesn't matter how good your roster is. If you've got a huge hole at quarterback, you're not going to make the playoff. But 
I don't necessarily see Alabama having what I would call a huge hole at quarterback. I think it's going to be competent. So I think that, yeah, they'll, they'll have a shot. They'll be in contention. And, um, you know, just like most balls, uh, it, they'll, they'll be one of the teams you're expecting to fight for that playoff spot. What, what do you think the strongest spot of this Alabama Crimson Tide football team is? You know, what position group or player group of players is really going to be the spot that's grinding out these wins for Alabama? Yeah, I think, well, you know, on offense, the running back position, I, you know, you've got really five backs that are great, four probably that are established. Um, so I, I think that, you know, they'll have a really deep unit. They should be able to have a fresh runner, whether it's, you know, Jason McClellan or Rodell Williams or Justice Haynes or um, who am I forgetting? Uh, Dan Miller. So I, I just think that uh, that's, that's obviously a strength we've talked about. I think the offensive line will be solid. It's got to overcome some early growing pains probably in early in the season, but I think that's something between those having the talent they have on the offensive line and the talent they have in the backfield, that could be a real big strength. And then in terms of defense, I, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a front seven with more just natural talent than Alabama has. So when it comes to getting after the passer uh, and being disruptive, I, I think this team can be really, really good at that. So that's what I would say on defense is just, you know, the edge rushing, um, even on the defensive line too, I think they could be really a really disruptive unit. Well, I know that your coverage of the Alabama Crimson Tide is never disrupted, and it's always right on point, especially with us being five days away from kicking off and seeing what this 2023 team has to offer in game number one. And I like how Nick Saban puts it. He says, hey, you guys, meaning the media, you guys expect this, or you guys think it's nailed in stone. I don't think anybody has told Nick Saban that, hey, you've got to go with Jalen Miro for the rest of the year as your starting quarterback. If you start him in game one, you got to start him in the national championship game, too. No one has ever assumed or said that to Coach Saban. So I love how he plays the mind games with the media and continues to, to be Nick Saban at his greatest. And if people want to hear the press conference or get the latest quotes and updates from all the Alabama players and Nick Saban as well, as we are in game week this week, how can they do so? Yeah, follow us at TideIllustrated.com uh, or, or Alabama.Rivals.com. Take you to the same place. Or you can follow us on Twitter at TideIllustrated. And you can also follow me on Twitter at, uh, at Tony underscore Sukala. Tony, can't thank you enough for always taking time out of your schedule. It's game week, my brother. You'll have some official depth charts and stats to talk with us about next week, and we'll be having a breakdown and a summary of what we were able to see at Bryant-Denny Stadium after Alabama finishes week number one and gets ready for that huge matchup with Texas. Thank you so much, Tony. Hey, I can't wait. I'll talk to you then. Tony Sakalis. Joining us this afternoon, Nick. And did, you, did you notice the the new tint in Coach Saban's hair? It's like a little auburn, reddish brown tint. Hey, I would love to see it in person. Yeah. Because sometimes TV doesn't That's do right, it the any contrast justice. Contrast on the color depends on the camera. But I'll say this: a guy in his seventies, that hair color ain't natural. Now I'm not knocking him. <laughs> if you got the means to do so, right? If that's what Miss Terry likes, then you do it. But I don't think he's sweating it out, though. I, I bet you it'll be that same no, color. No, no, uh, Rudy Giuliani. No, Rudy the color Giuliani. No, no, face. color leak coming from <laughs> Coach Saban. We're not going to have that problem for sure. 
<laughs> we're we're going to talk more hair club for men here on the final drive. No, the final drive will be right back. We'll talk about Auburn's depth chart next year on the final drive. War Eagle, this is Butch Thompson, head baseball coach at Auburn University. You're listening to WNSP. Welcome back to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. And, of course, Nick Saban said, look, I don't mean to disappoint y'all, but I'm not putting out a depth chart. And it's the first time in his coaching career at Alabama that he has not done so. But Hugh Freeze, I think the most interesting part about his depth chart is Jarquez Hunter is listed as the number one running back to play against UMass. Now, Really, the entire summer, we were wondering, is that going to be the case as far as a suspension standpoint, or was Damari Austin and Brian Batee going to have an opportunity to get immediate playing time while Jarquez Hunter was going to be on the sidelines? But as soon as he returned to practice, all indications were that what many media members and coaches considered a third-team all-SEC performer in Jarquez Hunter was going to have an opportunity here to start for the Auburn Tigers. Yeah, I mean, I'm. you have to assume he's going to play, right? And I guess if he doesn't, it at least puts a notice to everyone, like, hey, he's still our guy, you know? Um, I don't know. We'll see. Um, what, what was the suspension for again? So, again, alleged sexual video that misconduct that had gone on and that had gone viral. Oh, actually, I remember that. Hugh Freeze was not able to comment on it the entire offseason due to Auburn's policy that the university had not speaking on the matter. So it was just going to be a situation where is Jarquez Hunter going to play or is he not going to play? What was his official suspension going to be? And if Auburn took care of it internally and he's going to play game one versus UMass, hey, let, let, let's roll with Jarquez Hunter. Yeah, and it's looking like that's probably what's going to happen. Corey, I've got a question for you, man. Who would you say are the world champions of basketball? The world champions of basketball in the NBA, I mean, of course, you, you've had the Celtics in the past, the Lakers in the past, the Warriors in the past, the Bucks in the past. I mean, your world champions of basketball, whether it's your Toronto Raptors. I mean, Nick, to me, the diversity in the culture of the NBA, you, you've always called them world champions. That's right. So there's been a little controversy. This USA track guy basically clowning the NBA for being deemed world champions. I'll just let him try to explain himself in this audio clip, and then we can break it down because the NBA stars are really having a a great time clowning this guy. But let's just hear uh, it from the horse's mouth. The United States? You know, the thing that hurts me the most is that I have to watch the NBA Finals and they have world champion on their head. World champion of what? <laughs> the United States? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, 
I love the U.S. at times, <laughs> but that ain't the world. <laughs> that is not the world. We are the world. We have almost every country out here fighting, thriving, putting on their flag to show that they are represented. There ain't no flags in the NBA. <laughs> All right, Michael Jackson, we are the world. Look, <laughs> this guy was trying to be clever, and he came off like an idiot. The he NBA is the best basketball league in the world. Most of your top 10 players are not from America. The best players come be in the National Basketball Association to be a part of that. And that is why, I mean, look who led the Denver Nuggets to be world champions, right? Nikola Jokic. That's not America, man. He's a three-time gold medal winner this past weekend in Budapest, Hungary. Coming off, Noah Lyles is his name who made those comments, draped in an American flag. And did not look good, you know. I love America at times. <laughs> nah, hey, man, you got a big old USA on your shirt. I think you need to be, you need to word that a little, a little more eloquently, perhaps. But what are you going to do? But hey, guys, when we come back, let's talk about some of those college football games that played on Saturday. This is the final drive. The Sound of Mobile presents for the, win. the final drive. No, they didn't. Oh, my gracious. Yeah. How about that? With Corey Labounty and Dick Wiggins. For the win. Live on 105.5 FM and streaming on the Sound of Mobile app. Myself and Corey Labounty and guys, it's football season. We are now in week one, but that means that we have week zero games to discuss. And you know, we were originally planning to talk with Tyler Wojciak about the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, but he's actually in Dublin still and does not have good service. And WNSP was not trying to pay for the international call. <laughs> so we'll wait till he gets back to the States. But we can still talk about it. We watched it. And Notre Dame, let me just say, they looked really, really good. Notre Dame beating Navy 42-3. to Now, this might have technically been a home game. I don't know how you want to say that. But I'll say this. That Notre Dame offensive line looked great. They're running back, running wherever he wanted to. And Sam Hartman. Now, this is a guy who played for Wake Forest, just transferred out here. But I saw they popped up a stat on the screen, and it said he's played over 3,000 snaps. And every other, other Notre Dame quarterback that started all the way back to 2018 never had played more than like 1,000 coming into week one. So he is by far their most distinguished veteran quarterback that they've had in a long, long time, even though that he, he wasn't technically with Notre Dame, but he was really good out in Wake Forest before he got here, and he looked good on Saturday. He had to look good for the opening here of the 2023 season, and when you debut in Dublin, 42-3 to win, you need your defense to stand tall, and that's exactly what happened. But Hartman looking like he wants to say, look, I, I want to be considered the best quarterback in the country, whether I'm a grad transfer from Wake Forest or not. Very accurate concise 19 out of 23 four total touchdowns and you look at his numbers versus Caleb Williams 
with Southern Cal's victory. I, I just think that Notre Dame opened up the season with a statement win. We know Navy does not like to run the football. You mean throw. All they do is run the football. No, I'm just messing with you, Nick. I was about to say, whoa. (laughs) I'm just messing with you. Six passes thrown. I'm just messing with you. Even if you're a running team and your philosophy is we just run the ball, if you're down 42 to 3, I'm sorry. But you got to air it out a little bit, right? Nah, man. that That's just not their style. They're going to go ahead and they're going to ground and pound you. They're going to give you different formations and, and make you read your keys defensively. And if you don't do that, then they're going to beat you the same way they did. I mean, this game was over at halftime. Yeah. It, it was probably a great field trip for Navy. And I know all the Notre Dame fans, not like they needed a, a, an opportunity to, to see some true luck of the Irish over there in Ireland, but a, a great turnout for that first college football game for sure. You mentioned Caleb Williams. He also had a really good game for USC. You know, they beat San Jose State 56-28, to 28, but look, Notre Dame is allowing how many points? Three, and then you got USC allowing 28 to the San Jose State Spartans. And look, USC and Notre Dame, they're going to play each other this year. And I'll say this. Caleb Williams looked really good. That receiver, return specialist, special teams guy, uh, number one, I don't know, for UFC, USC. He looked really good. But the Austin rest of the Jones. USC team, I think I'm not really seeing anything too special. Like, look, in that, what, what was that, the second quarter where Caleb Williams, like, fumbled the ball in the snap – picks it up, doesn't even really plant his feet, and just slings it for like a 60-yard touchdown. That's Heisman Trophy winner stuff. I don't think USC has what it takes. And look, we're just talking about this one game. But they looked, the defense didn't look that good, and Notre Dame looked a lot more solid all the way around. I'll go ahead and say it. I think Notre Dame looks better than USC just from this little tiny sample size, right? And I don't know where you rank. Look, I'm not even going to fake with you guys. I don't know much about the San Jose State Spartans. I don't know much <laughs> about Navy, but I'm just going to kind of guess that they're in this, that same maybe tier of football team. And if you're allowing 28 points, I just don't think like they're going to finish top 10, but are they going to finish top four? I don't know. And I think whenever Notre Dame and USC do play, me personally, I think I would give the edge to the Irish. Well, I will say this, 21 to 14, at halftime, and you're the number six ranked team in the country, and you come out with the jitters. That's okay. USC jumps up seven to zero, but when you look at the number of points in the second quarter, fourteen and fourteen, and the way that USC was able to pull away, you know they had to be explosive in the third quarter. And Caleb Williams wants to say, "Look, I'm the reigning Heisman Trophy winner. I'm eighteen out of twenty-five. I threw for two seventy-eight. I threw for four touchdowns." So that's my debut performance coming off of a Heisman Trophy award. But I I know that USC's offensive line has to get better because you, you even though you do throw four touchdowns, how many of those were through pure athleticism and how, how many of them were based on your rushing game? And when you do look at USC rushing, total rushing yardage, only 160. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a back. Austin Jones did have six carries for 54 yards and two touchdowns and his long being of 37. But at the same time, Nick, 
USC's defense has to step up if you're going to consider to want to be in the top. This is a USC team, again, not taking anything away from Tulane because Tulane was the real deal a year ago. Yeah, Man, Tulane was running. They were – it was like a track meet yeah. in the Cotton Bowl a year ago. And here it is again. You're, you're really struggling defensively. They're, they're, they're going to get into a lot of shootouts, a lot of shootouts. They don't really have a tough opponent until they play Notre Dame. But then you're going – that back half of that schedule is pretty tough. You're going Notre Dame. You're going Utah, who looks pretty good this year. You got Cal, but then you're going Washington, Oregon, and then finishing it up with that UCLA rivalry. If you're planning on just, uh, we're going to drop over 50 points a game, over 40 points a game, and that's going to be enough, man, it is going to be tough, very tough to finish undefeated. Like it, cause that's They're not going to finish undefeated. Well, I'll tell you that. Utah, Utah is going to beat them. Utah's going to beat them again, the same way they did last year. I think Notre Dame's going to beat them. And, and like and I said, we're obviously all going off just these one games, but, hey, that's all we have to go off, so <laughs> we have to go off something. And USC, it looks like it's just, it's just offense. It is just offense. And I think when you have a team that has the mindset of we can get into a shootout with people, like, that's not what you want, man. You no, need no. your defense to be showing up just as much as your offense. Like, that game should have been 56 to – Seven. Back to back weeks, USC here on 10 14 and 10 21 in September. You're looking at USC playing Notre Dame. That's the date of the game. And then how do you follow up with that? You're going to have to see Utah. So, right there on your schedule, if you're USC and you think, all right, well, we're just going to go ahead and coast on through our first six or seven games of the schedule, well, it, it's not going to be that easy when you look at USC having to play Notre Dame and Utah in back-to-back weeks. That's where it's going to get interesting as far as the Pac-12 or whatever you want to call the left coast teams that's left. And also, you have the Washington Huskies that are going to have a lot to say right, about USC. I mean, I've seen a lot of people, they've got Oregon going into the playoff this year. They're high on Oregon and Bo Nix. You know, Mr. Mr. Manhattan on the, all those billboards. But when you look at Notre Dame's schedule, they really only have three tough games. I mean, maybe for Pittsburgh really isn't bad, even though they're not ranked. But Ohio State, USC, and then Clemson. And they've got Ohio State and USC at home. And then they're at Clemson. I mean, and then they're actually, after Clemson, they're going and playing Wake Forest where Sam Hartman spent, you know, his first three years of college. Uh, I kind of like Notre Dame. Honestly, like, if they lose to Ohio State, it's very, very possible that they win out. And, you know, with the playoff and everything, there's going to probably be a lot of teams that are right there around 11-1, and 10-2 this year. So the timing of the losses – is a factor, right? That, that that game that they have with Clemson though is a late game. Yeah, it, it, it's November fourth, so you only have two other regular season games that you're having an opportunity to make noise. If you're Notre Dame, if you sit and falter to USC, then you have an opportunity to kind of redeem yourself. If Clemson continues to hold their fair share of the bargain in the top ten, but what I really am looking forward to seeing with 
Notre Dame as well is Sam Hartman versus our guy, Mr. Leonard. Riley, you, you, you have Notre Dame and Duke playing one another at the end right. of September. So you'll definitely, from Hartman transferring in to Riley being listed as really a Heisman Trophy candidate as a dark horse, that's going to be fun. That's going to be fun to see and watch within that one. And also, I know this weekend, we, hey, we, we don't say it too often, but how about Vanderbilt holding Vanderbilt. it down that, for the SEC? That was an interesting game, man. Vanderbilt, they had it looked like it was all locked up, 35-14. Then all of a sudden, Hawaii kept they just started storming back. That Hawaii quarterback, man, he was he was throwing some dots. And there was also a point in time, I think, early in the first quarter where they thought that they blocked a punt, but no one blocked the punt. It just was a horrible punt, and it literally went zero yards uh but that happened very early on in the game but look later on though they're storming back they're storming back they get it to 35 28 they kick an onside kick they recover the onside kick but when he recovered it his knee or elbow or something was out of bounds uh so they didn't end up getting to keep the ball vanderbilt would go on to win uh I don't think Vanderbilt – I do remember when we had our betting guy on on Friday, he said that a bet that he liked was taking Vanderbilt over on wins for the season. They're projected to win three-and-a-half wins this year, uh, three-and-a-half games. And he was saying that they might could start the season 4-0 and because everything is out of conference and not a tough matchup. And th those might be the only four games that they win. I mean, they barely squeaked it out over the Rainbow Warriors, <laughs> which is just a interesting name, right? It's not June anymore. Pride Month is over. <laughs> oh, no, I'm just kidding. But look, uh, Vanderbilt, man. It, it, and look, I think I've said this before. When we were at Nashville Media Days, at SEC Media Days, it's fun seeing players that you spoke to. When Every time that Vanderbilt receiver would catch that ball, I'd be like, hey, was that was that the guy that I spoke to? Oh, yeah, it was. So that was nice. But Vanderbilt, they're not going to do anything this year. They're going to be at the bottom of the SEC again probably because I don't think Hawaii is a good team. But I got to give the quarterback some credit, man. He was throwing some great passes. Yeah, A.J. Swan is able to go ahead and, and get the big-time W. In other games that we were watching, I know that I was really rooting for Jacksonville State because they're representing our state of Alabama, and of course, they come away with a 17-14 win over UTEP, and also North Alabama, we had Brent Deerman on with this, and unfortunately, North Alabama was not able to come away with that big-time W, but again, great exposure. They lose 17-7 to in the Crampton Bowl there, and there's just a lot of names for North Alabama moving forward as far as from a coaching staff and from a player standpoint that we will be watching a lot of. The big-time television games that, that you have an opportunity to see this week, a little Thursday action gets us started on our Labor Day 
weekend, of course, Florida and Utah. And I just mentioned the Utah Utes and yeah. how dangerous that they can become and be out there and, that, and that, the that, problems that they gave USC. That's going to be a big game right there. I think that's going to really dictate where Florida goes the rest of the year, depending on how close that game can be. Or is Florida going to really be just scraping the bottom of the conference again with potentially only winning maybe four or five, maybe six games? And Utah, depending how they play, that might show how legitimate they are. Do they win by three touchdowns? Or is it a close game? So uh, that definitely, to me, is the game to watch on Thursday because I think it will really set the tone and the expectation for both of those teams for the rest of the year. Yeah, I, I'm just glad that we're back in, in the saddle and back in action as far as whether you want to call it week one or week zero because I, I still I, – I don't understand where this whole week zero got started from, and I know zero is a, is a number that we all talk about. We, we love zeros behind our checks, but as far as the zeros that have been started in high school football and college football, I, I, I'm not – I still haven't been able to grasp that part, but I am looking forward to this matchup on Thursday with Florida and Utah. Again, a year ago, such a tremendous, closely called game there, and I, I, I expect nothing less. And, of course, on the other side of this break here on the final drive, we'll continue to talk about what we saw on ESPN prior to the kickoff. ESPN College Game Day crew, Man, they made their predictions on who were going to win the SEC and the national championship games. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there is a new game day crew this year. Probably surprise you a lot with who they picked to not only win the SEC, but the national championship as well. We'll talk about that, and we'll also talk a little NFL action also. You're listening to The Final Drive here on WNSP 105.5. This is Reese Dismukes. You're listening to 1055 WNSP. Welcome back to the final drive on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Nick Wiggins. And as we were watching this week zero of college football and getting ready for college game day before we saw a little bit of Notre Dame and Navy, a little bit shocked, Nick Wiggins, that when you look at this new ESPN game day crew, and I say new because you have additions to the set for certain, Desmond Howard, Kurt Herbstreet, and Pat McAfee all there on Saturday morning. Desmond Howard, who do you think he went with his college football four selections? I already know where everyone went, and I'm sure that everyone – around here enjoyed hearing what they all had to say because they're all rolling with the tide, man. Yeah, man, listen, Desmond Howard, Alabama, Florida State, Michigan, and Texas in the Final Four. And then he says Michigan defeats the Crimson Tide to win the national championship. So, uh, look, if he feels Alabama, a lot of the analysts are feeling really, really good about the Crimson Tide's chances of beating Georgia, 
not only for the SEC championship, but for the national championship. And here it is, Desmond Howard does go ahead and pick Michigan and Alabama for the national championship. Now, Kurt Herbstreet, I wasn't quite sure what direction he may be going in, mm -hmm. but he and Pat McAfee had the same four teams with Alabama, Georgia, Michigan, and Ohio State. So no Florida State or Texas. He goes ahead and he says, look, Alabama, Georgia, Michigan, and Ohio State. McAfee does have the Crimson Tide defeating Georgia for the national championship. So not only does he feel, he says, I guess Alabama could possibly lose to Georgia in the SEC championship and still get in the college football four and win mm. the national championship. And this is from Pat McAfee. Now, Herbstreit says, all right, you know, uh, Alabama over Ohio State in the national championship. So you have Desmond Howard, who says his Wolverines are going to be in it and win it. And then you have Kurt Herbstreet who said, okay, I love Nick Saban and the Crimson Tide, but I'm going to pick them to defeat my Buckeyes of Ohio State. Any really shocking views there from any of those talking heads? Look, I know around here I always have the unpopular opinion that I'm maybe not as high on Alabama as everyone else, but I'm just curious as to what news has come out of Tuscaloosa None today. spring and now that would lead you to think this overwhelmingly positive outcome this year. I just don't get it. You know, I don't – I'm surprised – there's no LSU. I think if you're looking at a team in the SEC West, and now look, when the season goes on, things are going to change. But right now, with just going off preseason news and what happened last year, you're bringing back so many people at LSU. You got so many highly ranked players, right? We looked at, we talked about that college football top 100. You had so many LSU players on there, quarterback being one of them. I just don't know how people are so behind Alabama when there just hasn't been anything, not necessarily there's been anything negative to come out, but there hasn't been anything overwhelmingly positive to be like, oh, yeah, this is the year. No, you lost Bryce Young. You lost Will Anderson. You know, you lost Jameer Gibbs. There's a lot of question marks. So I just – that that's just my thing. I don't really understand – uh, that part of it. I mean, Corey, you're an Alabama guy, but like, what good news has come out to make you think, oh, yeah, here we go, 11 and 1, 12 and 0? That's what it's going to take. I think, again, a two loss Alabama team can find its way into the college football playoffs, but I, I do love the Georgia Bulldogs. I, I just don't understand the disrespect for Georgia. Here's a back to back national championship team that when we go to SEC media days, overall in general was picked to win the SEC championship. And here it is, when you look at Desmond Howard, Kirk Herbstreet, and Pat McAfee, no one even has Georgia outside of one with McAfee having the Crimson Tide defeating Georgia for the national championship. Just not a lot of respect. And I guarantee... Kirby Smart is going to use that to his advantage. Th that That's the type of rat poison that he says you should indulge in right there.
That's the rat poison you want to use as motivation if you're the Georgia Bulldogs. Back-to-back national champions and ESPN, ABC, who's going to be bringing us the national championship game. Their analysts don't even say, with the exception of McAfee saying Georgia's going down. Look, apparently Nick Saban has sold everybody on the fact that the defense is going to be really, really good. The team chemistry is going to be really, really good. And they're just going to find a way to get it done. I, I don't trust an analyst, man. Um, I remember they all had Alabama winning the, uh, you know, March Madness. And I was just like, let's just be realistic here. Like, what are this? Di- it's just not likely that that's how it's going to go. And I feel like it's the same thing here because what – what was the good news that was coming out of Alabama going into March Madness? There was not any. Now you don't have really any good news here. I just And look, if Alabama does have a great year and they go to the playoffs, fine. But I'm just saying there's nothing coming out of there that has me excited or hopeful for like a larger-than-life, you know, play, making the playoff, winning the championship. I just, I don't know. I don't see it happening, but you know what the Niners didn't see happening? Trey Lance working out. They shipped him off to Dallas for a fourth-round pick, and your Miami Dolphins came out good on that deal. What'd you get, three first-round picks? Love it. For the Niners to trade up and get Trey Lance, and now he's not even there. Played eight games for the Niners. As a, what, overall number two, three pick? Three. Come on, Nick. That's crazy. The value. I don't get it, man. And I, I look. I mean, you got Sam Darnold. He was a former number two pick. He's their new backup, but we'll see. Coming up next, Jason Aponte will be joining us from Niners Nation to talk about this new looking San Francisco 49ers squad. Hey, this is Jake Tilford, quarterback at Alabama. I'm listening to the radio. I'm listening to WNSB. Welcome back to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Nick Wiggins joining you on this Monday afternoon. Hope everyone had a great weekend and was able to soak in the last week of the NFL preseason the way that we were able to do last night. And, of course, when you want to look at the big news coming out of this weekend, it, it was Trey Lance as soon as that breaking news comes over the wire that Trey Lance traded to the Cowboys from the 49ers. You were wondering how long and where Brock Purdy was going to fit into this whole equation as as the future San Francisco 49ers quarterback. But Trey Lance is no longer a 49er and what the San Francisco 49ers had to give up to get him is is why we wanted to bring on our next guest Jason Aponte who is definitely with the Niners Nation Jason how's everything going my friend oh great Corey good to talk with you man absolutely and the 49ers again they they made those waves with this Friday game that they played against the Chargers I didn't see what was getting ready to come down the pipe with Trey Lance you knew he possibly would be held on to but now the fact that he's officially gone in a Dallas Cowboy was that shocking to you I think uh 
I think a little bit. It's, it's a bit shocking. It was always in the realm of possibilities that the 49ers would move on from Trey Lance. Um, but I figured with the way that they had already lost so many quarterbacks, especially last year, you know, why not hold on to a high upside guy like that? I think the real shocking part was where he landed, which was the Dallas Cowboys. So that would really really be only it. And I think it was because Dallas actually was the one offering the most, which was a fourth-round pick. And uh, it seems like the 49ers were just trying to do right by the young man who was obviously frustrated by not being named the backup quarterback at the very least and just wanted to start it fresh at a new situation. You know, it's not every day that you're drafting a quarterback with a top three selection, but, you know, the Niners did to get Trey Lance. Now he's gone, playing only eight games for them. How can you just summarize, I guess, the Trey Lance era or a little bit there was in San Francisco? Confusing a little bit. I mean, I don't think anybody can really walk away with any sort of solid feeling of what Trey Lance is. And sure, there's a world where Trey Lance is not a good quarterback, but I would have to see much more evidence of it as opposed to the small sample size that we've seen. It's a little bit confusing, and I think the most frustrating part for 49ers fans is we will never know based on how little he played. So it, it's just you, – you, I think the biggest mistake the 49ers made was trading up to three so early and then saying, okay, now we have work to do. Generally, when you trade up to a spot, it's because of a player you've already loved, not trying to figure out who that player is. So in that way, the process was a bit confusing. Outside of those moves that were made from a trade standpoint, we know the NFL cut roster is coming, and it's always evolving and changing. The 49ers, have they made any surprising other moves from their roster cuts? No, not just yet. Um, so cuts are going to start rolling in now. I mean, you've seen it across the league. The 49ers have kind of let go people that we kind of figured would not make the 53-man roster. There's definitely a chance that there would be surprise cuts. I wrote an article today on uh, Niners Nation about it. Uh, one surprise cut on both sides of the ball. One could be Javon Kinlaw. One could be Tyrion Davis-Price. Javon Kinlaw was drafted in the first round, unfortunately, injury after injury. And in the little time that he's played in the preseason, he's actually looked better as a pass rusher, but unfortunately is losing now his, his team as a run defender, which is odd because that's what he was really good at when he was actually playing in healthy. And Tyrion Davis-Price is somebody who is just has been poor at pass blocking. So we're going to find out. Um, the 49ers are very shrewd with how they try to sneak people onto the practice squad, possibly, you know, use an injury to put somebody on IR, which, you know, will have them come on retroactively four weeks after or possibly for the season. So the 49ers have their work cut out for them because they have a very top-to-bottom loaded roster. And there's going to be some good football players let go, not because they're not good. It's just a, just a numbers crunch. From a numbers crunch standpoint, we were looking at, from a contract standpoint, not really from a numbers crunch, someone who participated in this past year's Reese's Senior Bowl and a lot of Alabama fans here down in our neck of the woods would, would speak very highly of Latu, our tight end yeah. from formerly of the Crimson Tide. Let's talk about him and, and where he's standing with the 49ers organization. Well, unfortunately, when he first got in, I mean, he's a third-round pick, so obviously you're going to get some sort of precedent to play, right? Like, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get right in there. The 49ers obviously have George Kittle. They have other uh, tight ends that they, they utilize in different ways, but Latu struggled with drops a lot, and it was it was going on through camp. And then in the first game against the Las Vegas Raiders, um, he had a fumble, which is the easiest way to get tossed into Kyle Shanahan's doghouse, which some people make it out, some people don't. 
But I think there was a bigger sign that, that Latu was just pressing a little bit. Um, and it was during warm-ups of that Raiders game in which, you know, you're just standing there running routes against air, you know, and Trey Lance puts the ball right right where it needs to be where in his hands, and he dropped it. And it's just it, it was something that was going on in his head. Then he passed forward to the Denver game, and he actually scores the, the game-tying touchdown, which, you know, you know, Trey Lance winds up, you know, winning the game on the next drive. Um, he has a meniscus um, injury that's going to require surgery. So the real question is going to be if he's placed on IR before the 53-man roster comes out, that means he'll essentially miss the entire season um, and redshirt, or will they be able to keep him on the 53-man roster because I think you, you, there's no way you can get rid of a third-round pick um, without seeing him play um, and maybe put him on IR for about four to eight weeks or something like that. So it's going to be interesting to see, but the meniscus injury sounds like it's, it's since it requires surgery. It's going to take him a little time to get back from. So you guys traded for Christian McCaffrey in the middle of the season last year, and he took to your offense like a fish to water, immediately making mm -hmm. a big impact. I'm curious as to maybe, you know, now that you've had a whole off season with him, is there going to be anything different for us to expect out of McCaffrey this season? I mean, I don't think so. I think what you should try to expect is what you saw last year. I mean, Kyle Shanahan raved and raved about how Christian McCaffrey is so smart and sees the field like a quarterback and how he sees it. The dynamic that he brought kind of shattered a narrative around Kyle Shanahan being able to just find guys off the street and make them 1,000-yard rushers. He's, he was getting a bad rap because of injuries, but he played 17 games. And when he plays 17 games, that's what you're going to get. You get – you get someone who not only when they have the ball in their hands is going to make people miss and is super athletic, but he draws attention. And then that can open things up for Kittle, for Debo, for Ayuk. So, you know, when people say, well, there's only one football that can only go around so much, I think even just the gravity that Christian McCaffrey, you know, moves around on the field with is actually enough to unlock things in this offense. And it's always nice to have somebody to dump the ball down to if, if you know, everything else is covered. So I don't think you expect anything different. You just hope that you get more of the same from what you saw last year because of how the offense looks, and as you mentioned. So you talk about all the weapons and how Christian McCaffrey, you know, kind of like in a spread offense, right? You got to focus on this guy so that opens up your other guy. Does that – you know, we got Brock Purdy at quarterback now. Is Brock Purdy a good quarterback or a great quarterback? Or does he just have so many weapons to play with that it's almost impossible to be a bad quarterback? <laughs> it certainly feels like this is the $37,000 question, honestly. So the 49ers make this move with Trey Lance, and it just reaffirms what they've been saying. Real deal, all of those things, right? From what you saw with him with the, eight, with the eight games, the offense was putting up numbers that they haven't seen since Steve Young was the quarterback, okay? So, yeah, he's a great processor, and, he, and what he does is he operates the offense. But people take that as a slight when you say things like, oh, well, he's operating the offense as some sort of game manager or somebody who's being lifted by the offense. Sure. I don't think anybody can deny that Kyle Shanahan's offense has guys running wide open. He's an incredible play designer. What Kyle Shanahan's bread and butter is, understanding your defensive rules and using them against you to create space for his guys. So he, he knows what you're supposed to do. You do what you're supposed to do, which is what your coaches have taught you, but that's what he uses against you to get somebody open in a high-low conflict. I think Brock Purdy understands exactly a lot of those things, and he actually has a little bit more of a gunslinger mentality than people think um, because he does let the ball rip. Um, he sees it. He rips it. And I think he sees the field the way Kyle Shanahan does. So does he need to be a great quarterback? Sure, everybody would love that. 
But if he operates the offense in the fashion that we saw down the stretch last season, I don't think it's going to matter because the 49ers have such a great defense and they have such a great play caller and all those weapons. So it, it's all like a cog in the machine, which is in no way a slight at Brock Purdy's ability. We're speaking with Jason Aponte from Niners Nation. And, and I do have a question. You mentioned the, the Latu injury. So here is a, a player that you used a draft pick on. And, of course, here in our own neck of the woods with Darrell Luter Jr. being on the physically unable to perform list. What's the update and the latest on Luter Jr.? And, and that's kind of tough luck for the 49ers to have two players that, that are rookies that aren't getting a lot of reps. Yeah, it, it sounds like there hasn't been really, really any injury updates in terms of a timetable to come back. Um, it does. I, I can say that the team is extremely high on Darrell Luter, and especially Steve Wilkes. That felt like while there's a, a lot of cooks in the kitchen with the draft process, and you know, there's a lot of times where we try to put together, hey, was this a Kyle pick? Was this a Lynch pick? Was this and that and Peters pick? Certainly feels like Darrell Luter was a Steve Wilkes pick. Had nothing but good things to say about him. They say he's wise beyond his years. He looks like a pro's pro. But as far as the injury goes, we haven't heard anything about it at this point. And with the with the 53-man rosters uh, coming up tomorrow, I would say it's a fair chance that, unfortunately, he is not going to play this season. And they'll have him ready to go next season as the, the roster shuffles with uh, salary cap issues. And they still got to figure out this Nick Bosa thing. So a lot of money to be allocated to a lot of stars temporary setback for an ultimate comeback there for Darrell Luter Jr. for sure. And overall, the San Francisco 49ers, again, making those huge waves this weekend with trading Trey Lance, but going one and two in the preseason. When you start to look at that, what kind of forbearing does the preseason have, if any, on what you can look forward to for the San Francisco 49ers team playing in the NFC Western division that really has Seattle, to me, coming out as the favorite? Well, I, look, for me, the preseason is all about just making sure that you are sharpening your skills and just getting reps more than anything and just getting ready and, and more importantly, just being healthy. Biggest takeaways are that when the 49ers offense was on the field with Brock Purdy and everyone, the only person that didn't play was Christian McCaffrey. The offense scored three times on the, and on the three drives that they had. And they, well, I'm sorry, let me, let me, I misspoke. They scored two times and they got to the one yard line and they fumbled at the, at the one yard line on a running back, uh, Jordan Mason. So, but the offense looks like it did last year and Brock Purdy with that arm, it looks like he's fine. The defense is going to be the defense. I think it's hard to, to, assess anything with the defense since they haven't really played much on the field. There is no Nick Bowles, so that's another thing. Um, you've only taken about 10 or 11 snaps with Eric Armstead, Javon Hargrave. I'm not necessarily as worried about the defense. And when you look at the results of the games, realistically, the preseason is about, again, being healthy, making sure you're getting reps, and also trying to figure out what you have with certain players and how you round out this 53-man roster with players who contribute on special teams or just on defense or what their roles will be. So I don't necessarily think that you should get bogged down with the results, you know, one and two, things like that. You know, I, I always look back to, I think the Detroit Lions were 3-0 and uh, in the preseason right before they went 0-16. Um, so preseason isn't necessarily a great indicator of where you're going. I still believe in the roster. They're still top-heavy. And as long as that offense is putting up points, they may be able to offset any sort of defensive decline that they have if they're missing Nick Bosa or let's just say regression hits. 
Jason, can't thank you enough for that San Francisco 49ers update, especially with the trading of a number three overall quarterback this young in his career just when I tell you that it just didn't go his way hopefully he not not saying that he's going to play behind Dak Prescott immediately but as a Cowboys fan uh, once can tell you you never know what you're going to get whether it's good Dak or bad Dak and with that being said I know the 49ers are looking to try to stay atop this division this year and, and reestablish themselves to to making it back to the Super Super Bowl being one game away a year ago with all the question marks that were there offensively. How can people follow your tremendous coverage of the San Francisco 49ers? They do prepare for the roster cuts and prepare for their week one matchup with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Hey, thank you for having me on again. Anytime that you guys want me on, uh, I, you know, I got it. I love talking to uh, the team and you guys can find me on Twitter, Jason Aponte 2103. Um, on YouTube, you can just type in Jason Aponte. It'll come up, Jason Aponte 49ers. And uh, I write every single day on NinersNation.com. That's where you can find my written work. Jason, can't thank you enough. Be safe, my friend, and stay cool. Thank you so much. Have a good one, guys. And Nick Wiggins, I, I, I will say this. When you trade an overall number three quarterback mm. this early in his career, mm-hmm. management, Man, is really going to be question mark, question mark, and question mark. That's like when I was trying to chase that GameStop stock, and I bought it for like 30 bucks, and then a couple weeks later I had to sell it for like $8, <laughs> and I was like, what the heck? What did I do that for? You know, it was just a waste of money, a bad investment, and look, and that's like he said, you know, they don't even know if Trey Lance is bad, and that's maybe the most frustrating part. And... You have all the quarterback issues you had last year. I don't really know what. I think they sold high in a way. Like, what do you mean they sold high? They, this was the guy they gave up three first-round picks for, and they traded him for a fourth-round pick. It probably would have been less, you know, if you hold him throughout the rest of the year and see, oh, wow, he's really just not going to play at all. So, Dallas, they've got a nice backup quarterback with potential to maybe – hopefully do something that was maybe worthy of being a top pick at one time but you know we'll see how it goes but you know what we're gonna see how it goes with John Ricchetti tonight that Miller like golf report we're gonna get a quick update quick preview coming up right here on the final drive This is Showtime boxing analyst Steve Farhood, and you're listening to Sports Radio 105.5 WNSP. The Golf Report brought to you by Don Hart, LLC Engineer Products and Services with John Rachetti. Rachetti, how's it going, my friend? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Corey, how you doing? Absolutely blessed by the best. I know that you're going to be on site tonight. Where are you going to be at? I'm going to be at Terry Thompson's Chevrolet in Daphne. And, uh, you know, lots to talk about. Tomorrow's the big day when Zach Johnson is going to make his captain's picks, his next picks, tomorrow morning. And, uh... From what I gather, my sources tell me that he's got five of them. They're just mauling over the last one. And in those five, that Brooks Kepka and Justin Thomas will be on that team 
name tomorrow. So I don't know how good my sources will be, but we'll find out come tomorrow morning, that's for sure. You'll be able to talk about your Ryder Cup as well as tonight on your show, the Tour Championship with the FedEx Cup, all that, and, and plus some women's majors going on in LPGA as well. So I know that's just a little bit of what's going to be going on tonight on your Miller Lite John Rochetti's Golf Show. Yeah, we'll talk about, obviously, Victor Hovland, uh, you know, the great, uh, you know, obviously, you know, he's your FedEx Cup winner. He's $18 million richer today. Guys, uh, you know, played some great golf in the last two. He's probably the hottest player in golf today. And, uh, you know, he'll be he'll be tough force on that European Ryder Cup team uh, come at the Ryder Cup at the end of September in Italy. So, We'll break that down tonight. We'll talk about tomorrow's selection. We'll talk about the LPGA and also Vijay Singh winning on the Champions Tour, which Paul Goidos five-putted from 18 feet on the 17th hole yesterday that uh, cost him that tournament. But uh, there's a lot of stories going on in the world of golf, and we'll have that all tonight at 6 o'clock. John Rochetti, can't thank you enough. Look forward to tuning in right after the final drive. 6 o'clock p.m., the Miller Lite John Rochetti's Golf Show going to be right here on WNSP 105.5. And, of course, as we start hour number three, we'll be talking with Zach Blackerby, host of Locked On Auburn and at the Auburn Daily as well. The depth chart is official for Hugh Freeze, and we'll talk about Auburn getting ready for UMass coming up next here on the final drive. The Sound of Mobile presents for the win, the final drive. No, they didn't. Oh, my gracious. Yeah. How about that? With Corey Labounty and Nick Wiggins. For the win. Yes. Live on 105.5 FM and streaming on the Sound of Mobile app. Oh, oh, unbelievable. Welcome to our number three of the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. Corey LeBounty along with Nick Wiggins joining you on this Monday afternoon and hope that you guys had an outstanding work weekend. And when you start talking about how you can correspond with us here at WNSP as we're getting ready to kick off all of our college and professional football games here that you can hear on WNSP. We'd love to hear from you on the WNSP Sound of Mobile app, a free downloadable app to any Apple or Android device that you may have. And you can also make comments to our guests like our next one, Locked On Auburn, Zach Blackerby joins us this evening. Zach, thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, happy Monday, guys. Absolutely, it's a happy Monday because 2.30 on Saturday at Jordan-Hare Stadium against UMass, the Auburn Tigers will have an opportunity to debut the Hugh Freeze era. And I know with the depth chart officially being released today by Auburn, 
I know that really, did you see any surprises that really were coming from a one, two, or three depth chart for Hugh Freeze? I thought the quarterback listing was interesting. Not Peyton Thorne starting. Obviously, we knew that from a week ago. But the backup, I assume, would be Robbie. But they've got a little or next to Robbie and Holden Gurner. So I thought that was a little interesting. Um, outside of that, no, I, I don't think so. We've seen, we, you know, the last week or so, we've seen a different offensive line alignment, not the not the group we've seen pretty much throughout camp. And they went with the group that we've seen pretty much throughout camp, not the most recent one. I thought that was a little surprising uh, just because Xavion Miller has kind of been trending up over the last week or so. Uh, and outside of that, no, I think everything else went pretty much how we expected it to go. Jarquez Hunter was named RB1. Jarquez Hunter was named RB1. Is he going to be good to play game one against UMass? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that seems to be pretty much done. Uh, I know that there's some questions, but I think we talked about it last week. I, I would be shocked um, if Jarquez Hunter was not out there. Uh, to start the season. So, of course, I guess we don't technically know that, but right. just talking to folks close to the situations, like I, it seems like everybody um, expects Jarquez Hunter to be out there. There hasn't been anything told to the team, uh, to my knowledge, that Jarquez Hunter will not be out there against UMass. What is that running back tandem going to look like this year? How is it going to be split? And what do you just, you know, what do you see that looking like? Yeah, Nick, I think that's the million-dollar question. We can guess, right? You know, Jarquez Hunter is definitely 1A. It seems like Damari Austin is 1B. He's had a fantastic spring and a fantastic fall camp. Hugh Freeze just raves about him as a player and him as a leader, and I don't think a whole lot of people expected that because he's such a younger guy. But he's been exceptional on and off the field. Impressive young man. And they brought in Brian Batty, who, uh, you know, he's an experienced guy. He's a veteran player from the University of South Florida. So it kind of seems like, to me, Austin and Jarquez Hunter will have a role. And I think, you know, for every 10 carries those two guys get, Jarquez Hunter will get six and Damari Austin will get four. That's my guess. And then Brian Batty is your change of pace guy. Attack the perimeter throw it to him. I think you can do a lot with how explosive and how dynamic he is. You can't tackle what you can't see, and it sounds like um, he's had a pretty good fall, and he's pretty tough to tackle as well. So that's kind of my guess. And then there's Jeremiah Cobb, who you know is arguably the best guy in this class, but I think he's going to be the fourth running back. I, I don't know how much of him we'll see in conference play, but against UMass, uh, you know, you're probably going to see him too. Well, when you look at the Auburn Tigers head coach, Hugh Freeze, his press conference and his depth chart as well. You have UMass that is a big, big underdog. And I think that as you're going in and if you're expected to win by 37 or more by the odds makers, what you want to do is you want to go ahead and rest your starters, possibly the second half or, or get them as many reps. What's your philosophy about that? Do you, if you jump up on someone big, you know you're getting ready to travel across the country. Do you want to see more depth and see that second and third string guy? Or do you go ahead and say, look, I just want to see all ones for as long as I can handle it late into the third or early fourth? 
Yeah, I think if you've got a good idea who your ones are, maybe your ones in that first rotation in after that, I, I kind of want to see them as much as possible because just like Q Freeze and his coaching staff, a lot of these starters are brand new too. A lot of these guys are going to run out of Jordan-Hare Stadium for the first time ever. And a lot of these guys have never been to an Auburn game before because Auburn didn't recruit them as they were you know, high school kids. And I, I think you're going to see – I think you're going to see some of these guys stay in a little bit longer than you might expect, uh, especially when Hugh Freeze was asked about injuries. He kind of highlighted that Robbie Ashford got an oblique injury. And so does that make you more hesitant to pull Peyton Thorne to put Robbie in? My guess says yes. I don't know that, but that's just me kind of reading in between the lines. But Cal's going to be a tough opponent, and you need to make sure you can get as many game reps as possible. And look, I don't think Auburn is taking UMass lightly. I've talked to several uh, members of this team, you know, just kind of off the record, and they're not looking at Cal stuff yet. They are dialed in and focused on UMass. And I just think this coaching staff is going to reward these guys that are really focused and give them a little bit more playing time uh, against them. That's just my guess, guys. But, uh, yeah, my philosophy is you keep your ones in as long as possible to get those reps because – Cal's not going to care. <laughs> you know, Cal's going to try to beat you in their house when they got an SEC team uh, in, in their house in pack four countries. So um, that's, that's just that's the way I would handle it. We'll see what Hugh Freeze does on Saturday. Your response leads perfectly into my question here. You know, look, UMass is, I think I saw that they were the lowest ranked college football team this year. So I'm kind of already chalking that up as a big win. But I'm curious, what does, you know, you mentioned that Cal looks good. What looks so good about them? Against Cal? Uh, I mean, I think it's going to be more of a situational thing than it actually is about Cal. You know, everybody, every staff travels differently. I think there's going to be a lot of newness with, uh, with how Auburn moves across the country. But also, I mean, with the exception of some of these kids that transferred from Oregon, your Jason Jones, your Robbie Ashford, your DJ James, you know, these kids have never played at Cal Berkeley before, and I think that's going to be something that is interesting. Also, it's a 9:30 kickoff. It's going to be the latest game in Auburn football history. You know, how does that impact things? Um, so, just, just kind of a unique situation when you look at the Auburn Cal game. And obviously, Cal is a team that I guess you don't really know a whole lot about. I think offensively. Uh, based on what they've done in the past, they're really good at attacking the edges, a lot of stretch runs, a lot of rollouts with their quarterbacks, and we're kind of all guessing that the weakness of Auburn's defense is going to be containment and, you know, can they defend perimeter action? And I think that's what Cal does pretty well based off of folks that I've talked to. So uh, I think that's an element of it as well. And so, you know, you look at UMass, how can Auburn use UMass to get better at that specifically? Um, their quarterback is pretty mobile, and he's, I'm sure he's going to have times where he's going to try to get to the outside. Let's see what Auburn does from a containment standpoint and a pursuit standpoint and see if that translates to Cal next week. Well, what has to translate for the Auburn Tigers is to start off on a positive note, and you don't want to be in a close game with UMass for certain. Now, this time when we talk to you next week, Zach, what do you think the vibe in the, the, the I guess, what do you want to say, the 
the elephant in the room, so to speak, if you're an Auburn Tiger fan. What do you think that's going to be? Uh, is it going to be wide receivers? Is it going to be the offensive line? Is it going to be the quarterback play? Is it going to be the defensive backs? Where do you think we're going to be spotlighting this Auburn program next week? Yeah, I'm curious if a week from now we'll really know that much more than we know right now. I mean, we'll have seen Peyton Thorne in an Auburn jersey. And we'll see maybe who emerges as, as wide receiver one. Like, who who does Peyton Thorne look at first once he gets the ball in his hands? Is that Shane Hooks? Is it Camden Brown? Is it Javarius Johnson? We'll, we'll see, maybe, uh, depending on how much they open up the playbook. But I don't know. I, I think Auburn's going to feel really good about their rushing attack. And I think they're going to feel good about their offensive line. And I think the wide receivers are going to look fine against UMass. But are they going to do enough to really wow you? and say, okay, yeah, they could do this against anybody? Probably not. Probably not, just because it's it's the opponent that we're talking about. So I don't know, Corey, if the conversation about Auburn is going to be that much different a week from now um, than it is as we talk today. I guess if Auburn were to struggle really badly in a certain situation, they kept giving up big plays through the run or through the pass or – I guess if they weren't able to score, if they only if they won this game twenty-one to ten or something like that, you know, I think that would probably be a bigger talking point. But I don't think uh, I, I'm not going to predict that to happen. I'm talking with Zach Blackerby of Locked On Auburn. I saw that you had Jake Crane on your show. We had him on our show last Friday, and he made the bold prediction that he has your Auburn Tigers actually upsetting Alabama in the Iron Bowl. Do you share that sentiment? Uh, I don't. I don't. Yeah, Jake Crane's great. We have him on. He's on Locked on Auburn every Thursday. Now, on Friday's show, uh, Daryl Daffert, who hops on with you guys from time to time, he and I kind of did all of our predictions, all of our guesses. He actually said a similar thing. He had Auburn going 8-4, and four, beating Alabama in the Iron Bowl. I did not. I did not. I've got Auburn going 7-5, and five, um, really losing all of their games um, against teams that are – you know, have a better roster than them. I had them losing to A&M, LSU, Georgia, Ole Miss, and Alabama. Those are the five losses that I have for Auburn. So uh, I do not agree. I don't. I'm not ready to pick Auburn to win in the Iron Bowl. But hey, man, if they, if Auburn's in a situation where they improve over the course of the year and they've got good quarterback play, and, and it's at home, uh, man, I, uh, I think if things fall the right way, I could pick Auburn during that week leading up to the Iron Bowl. But as of right now, we got a long way to go to get to that point. Absolutely. And we don't have a long way to go before Auburn kicks off at 2.30. And how can people follow all of your tremendous coverage of Locked On Auburn as we are in game week for the starting of the 2023 college football season? Yeah, Locked On Auburn is available wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube and Look, the, the cool thing about the Locked On Podcast Network, if you want to learn more about South Carolina versus North Carolina or Duke versus Clemson this week, just type in Locked On, whatever that school is, and we've got you covered all season long with daily shows that are super team-specific. So I uh, want to encourage folks to just search whatever Locked On, whatever that team name is that you pull for, um, we've got you covered there. Well, can't thank you enough to – keeping us locked in as we'll see if the Tigers are not locked out 
of another great opportunity to bring back the Auburn football tradition and the excitement in Jordan-Hare Stadium that when they're, when they're winning, I, I, there's no better environment for certain than what you experience at Jordan-Hare Stadium. And look forward to talking to you next Monday, Zach. Hey, thanks, guys. Y'all have a good week. Zach Blackaby, host of Locked on Auburn. And as he mentioned, you can also follow him. He's the college channel manager at Locked on Network and does a, a great job making sure all the fans get all the coverage of their teams. When we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about what's been going on with P. Diddy. P. Diddy, we know Sean Puffy Combs with some big pockets. We'll tell you. How gracious P. Diddy has been on the other side of this break here on the final drive. Hey, this is David Morris of QB Country. When I'm in my car, I always have it tuned into 105.5 WNSP, the sports station. Welcome back to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5 and you may need to go ahead and, and get that umbrella out. Did I say umbrella, Nick? Because I, I know that we haven't seen rain here in Mobile in quite a long time. I know, man. I'm thankful. Hopefully it cools off the air a little bit. I need I need it to rain during the day. <laughs> it, it's been something that, that doesn't happen that often. But what does happen quite often is when you're a philanthropist and you have money a, to give away a, a philanthropist yes <laughs> okay you you you're, you're very generous <laughs> yeah. with your funds That's big right. word for the day <laughs> i know <laughs> we were able to spit it out without <laughs> stuttering it out but Sean P Diddy Combs Puff Daddy right. as a lot of people know him was able to to be very generous and donate 1 million dollars to Jackson State and, of course, Jackson State was on ABC primetime television playing Savannah State, and they defeated Savannah State 37-7 to in the debut of T.C. Taylor. And don't forget Jackson State coming back to Mobile, Alabama, to play in the Gulf Coast Challenge on October 7th. So looking forward to, to seeing a Jackson State team that, back-to-back -back SWAC champions and playing Alabama A&M right here in our own backyard on October 7th. But P. Diddy, Diddy, whatever you would like to call him, Mr. Combs being very generous with his funds and donating that $1 million to Jackson State. So I, I found that pretty interesting. And, and you know, it's not, it's not frustrating when you do donate money to a charity or a cause but social media sometimes can be a little frustrating nick wiggins as facebook marketplace man yes. it, it it's uh, our appers people in the app do, do you use facebook marketplace because nick wiggins man I, I know you tried to I'm to, trying, to be helpful man, I'm, I'm, I'm trying i all show, I keep glancing at my phone. It constantly vibrates. I've gotten over 100 messages today because I'm posting some things on Facebook Marketplace that I'm trying to get rid of. And, man, I don't know. Some people, they, they can make almost like a side, a whole side hustle off of, you know, buying and selling things on here. I don't understand how you do it. I, I tell the lady, 
hey, yeah, come pick it up. She says, okay. Meanwhile, I got 40 more people saying, hey, is this available? Hey, is this available? Hey, is this available? Yeah, but I already got one lady scheduled to pick it up. And then I've, I've already told all these people, no, you know, don't come through. I got another lady coming through. She says, no, actually, now I can't come through. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I, I've told all – I've already put off all these people because I'm banking on you, and it's not like you can say, you know what, everyone just come whenever you want, and if it's there, it's there. I can't have eight people all pulling up, you know, fighting over this bookshelf or whatever. I'm just <laughs> – I'm, I'm about to the point where I'm just going to message everyone and say, yeah, it's right there by the road near the trash can because I, I, I don't – it is just – I don't know if anyone that's listening uses Facebook Marketplace or like a Craigslist very often, but I am so annoyed by the people messaging me. I would almost pay them to just leave me alone, and I don't even want to make any money off it. Let me just throw it away. It's, it is, it has been a very annoying day on on my phone at least. Oh, well, I will say this, if this rain passes and doesn't hit, I I guarantee you if you put it out by the street, it'll be gone before in the morning. Yeah, see that that's the fa- maybe that's the Facebook marketplace I believe in and that's the <laughs> Dolphin the Dolphin and Hallett Street uh market and you know you just leave it out there and and someone will come by and they'll claim it. So it, it it'll definitely be claimed w- without question. And of course, you know, when our next guest comes up, Caroline Fenton, she's going to be locked on LSU, host a, of 102.5 The Game. Hour, man, talking I, nothing but Tigers. I, I'm looking forward to, to talking to Miss Caroline, and she's going to be making her debut here on the final drive. But LSU being disrespected by the talking heads at LSU, by the media at SEC Media Days, we'll talk to Miss Caroline to, to see how frustrated Coach Kelly is, of course, he addressed the media today as they're in game week mode as well. I would say they're playing the game of the week. Huge game of the week. One of the best top 10 matchups we've been waiting to see for sure. And it'll have a lot to say at the end of the year. Caroline Fenton, Locked On LSU, joins us next. And, Corey, I've made it no secret on this show that I'm not rocking with the Tide this year. All right? I'm all in on these LSU Tigers. I am eating the gumbo. And someone who may share my sentiment would be Caroline Fenton with Locked on LSU, also host on 102.5 The Game. Caroline, how are you doing? I mean, it is just music to my ears to hear you say that. I don't know if you're just trying to butter me up or not, but I love to hear you say that I'm doing great, and I appreciate you all for having me on. Look, these feelings are completely genuine, okay? Now, look, these college football game game day guys, right, these professionals, quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers right now, they're not showing (laughs) love to LSU. How How do you feel about that? They're not showing love to LSU? 
Yeah, they didn't. No one had them projected in their uh, playoffs. They have Alabama there. Who else was in there, Corey? Help me out. Georgia, Michigan, Georgia, Florida Michigan, State, Ohio State, and Alabama. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I I have to disagree, honestly, because with LSU being a top ten team three seasons, I like I'm feeling the love a little bit, and no, that would leave you know if that's what the rankings look like come January, that would leave LSU on the outside looking in. But with the preseason rankings giving LSU that much hype and that much of the benefit of the doubt coming off of a nine win regular season, uh, like I have to I have to be really excited about that as an LSU fan. I look at the top four, Georgia being the number one team in the country. Like I have no qualms with that. I don't really know if you can make a case for another team being number one overall. But I look at Ohio State and Michigan and Alabama and I look at those three teams as being kind of the benefit of the doubt teams. As we enter this college football season, I mean, there's a whole lot of question marks surrounding a whole lot of teams, whether it be new quarterback, new coordinators, new head coaches, you know, shake up offensively. But the teams like Ohio State and Michigan and Alabama, your repeat offenders in the college football playoff, I look at those and say, well, it's easy for, you know, the AP voters or for the coaches poll to give those teams the benefit of the doubt since they have been repeat offenders in the college football playoffs throughout so much change in college football. So I really, I, I feel opposite. I do feel like LSU is getting a good bit of love going into this season, and, and rightfully so. I mean, LSU returns a ton of production. LSU has a lot of continuity on the coaching staff. There's a lot of reason to be excited about this LSU team. Brian Kelly ultimately feels like when he spoke, at SEC media days, he wasn't worried about the fact that the media or the talking heads were going to pick someone other than his LSU Tigers to win the SEC West. But what better way to go out with divisionless football coming next year than LSU becoming possibly back-to-back Western Conference champions in the toughest conference in the country? No, divisionless football in 2024, don't remind me. It is a, it's a scary reminder that we are headed towards some major change, but it is so true that if LSU goes into this season and if they, let's say they finish um, maybe 11-1 and one in the regular season and they win the SEC West and get back to Atlanta for the second time in that many years, that, what a huge testament to Brian Kelly and to his coaching staff. Like, let's not forget that we're only one year removed from LSU having maybe more questions than any other team in the SEC. At this point last year, we didn't know who the starting quarterback was going to be. We didn't know what kind of fit Brian Kelly was going to be uh, at LSU in the SEC. I remember saying at SEC Media Days in 2022, I said, I think LSU could be 9-3. I think LSU could be 6-6. Six and six. And nothing in between there would really surprise me. But seeing LSU pull out the season that they did this past season and capping it off with a win against Alabama, an SEC West win, a trip to Atlanta, and then a, a, a massive statement bowl victory against Purdue, not in a, in a New Year's Six Bowl, but I think that every LSU fan can look back on this last season and say that we over-exceeded expectations, that LSU over-exceeded expectations. But now the expectations are even higher. No, you weren't ranked preseason last year. Now you're a top-five team. So I'm intrigued to see how Brian Kelly and the rest of this team that returns a lot of veterans and a lot of leadership, how they now react to being the hunted. You know, they were the hunters last year. They felt like the underdogs last year. But now they've got a target on their back. So how do they react to that? 
I'm interested to see. Yeah, and look, you're you're right. They're the hunted, but having a quarterback like Jaden Daniels, who I think most people, even our local Alabama fan base, would agree is probably the best quarterback in the SEC right now. But I want to ask you specifically about Harold Perkins Jr. This is a sophomore yeah. linebacker for LSU who ESPN ranked as the fourth best player in college football. I mean, you give me, you know, all the time in the world, and that's still not enough time to, t- to talk about Harold Perkins and to brag about Harold Perkins. I mean, what he was able to do last year as a true freshman with a very, you know, I would say novice grasp on the defense and with a very fluid role. And he, I look at that Arkansas game, that was the Harold Perkins game. The way that he was able to affect the quarterback in almost every single game that he was on the field is truly unlike something I've ever seen, especially from a true freshman. Now Harold Perkins is coming into this second year, and he has a better grasp on his role. And that's something that, uh, that Brian Kelly touched on today with the media because it, you know, he and John Jancic, the outside linebackers coach, Matt House, the defensive coordinator, they have said several times throughout the offseason, we want Harold Perkins to play linebacker. We brought him to be a linebacker. We want him to play linebacker. Last year, he really didn't have a defined role. He was more so just less of a linebacker, more of just Harold Perkins. Just throw him out there and he'll do what he does. But today, Brian Kelly spoke with the media and said our plan for Harold Perkins is to be wherever the offense least expects him to be, where the offense has to try and find where Harold Perkins is before every single snap. So he absolutely is going to be a weapon. And I'm excited to see how his role changes and grows. And uh, no, honestly, I was nervous for Harold Perkins to not be in the role that he was last year. I thought, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Don't move Harold Perkins around. But frankly, I'm excited to see what he does in a larger role because if he's able to affect the game so much this past season without a defined role with a rather, you know, surface level, and I don't mean that as a derogatory term in the slightest, but a surface level understanding of the defense, how much more dangerous can he be with an even larger role and a more expanded understanding of what Matt House, defensive coordinator, wants to do with him. We're speaking with Caroline Fenton, of course, from 102.5 The Game, locked on LSU. And one year ago, you look at Daniels leading the team in rushing as well. It's never a great sign to me when your quarterback is your leading rusher, and especially when you think about LSU. And I know Brian Kelly comes in and the success that he had and being balanced at Notre Dame, but who do you think really will lead this team in rushing? Or is there a back that's hiding out there that a lot of people haven't heard or seen from in this LSU Tiger program? And you're absolutely correct. Like, you never want your quarterback to be your leading rusher for several different reasons. Um, but that's one thing. Jaden Daniels is going to be used in the run game a lot because that's what makes him so special. Is he's got a good arm and he's grown his passing game, matured a lot in the passing game over this past season. But that's when he becomes Superman is when he can also use his legs. But on the running back side of things, like, that's the room that I think I feel most confident about going into the season with LSU. you got eight running backs in that room, six of which have at least a season, if not multiple seasons, of Power 5 college football experience. Five of them are returning this season from LSU, and one is return, uh, just transferred in from Notre Dame. It's Logan Diggs, Louisiana native, played under Brian Kelly for his first couple of seasons at Notre Dame. And I think that that might be kind of the – 
maybe the dark horse in his running back room, maybe a name that people don't recognize or don't know, and that's Logan Diggs. Transfer from Notre Dame, and he can do a lot. He's an incredibly versatile back. He can catch passes out of the backfield. He can bull you up at the line of scrimmage. I don't think that there's going to be a go-to guy in this running back room simply because there is just there's so many bodies and there's so many good and skilled backs in this room that I don't think that you can have that traditional LSU style of running back with like a Leonard Fournette or a Darius Sice or a Syed Abdelair where it's you've got your go-to guy and he is you know it's he's the guy. That's not going to be the case. I truly think it's going to be a running back by committee. But I think Logan Diggs, just in terms of his versatility, I think that he might be a guy that's a little bit of a secret weapon in this running back room. You guys have got probably the game of the week coming up here against Florida State. You guys number five, them number eight. What is maybe the main thing you think that LSU needs to focus on to be able to beat Florida State this time around? You say game of the week. I could argue game of the year. Okay. I mean, between the, the Alabama-Texas game and this LSU-Florida State game, I mean, those games could have massive college football playoff implications if all goes according to plan for each of those four teams. I think, you know, the, the biggest thing for me is, one, can you get pressure on Jordan Travis? Um, he's also he reminds me a lot of, of Jaden Daniels. That he's strong with his arm, but he also is incredibly elusive as well. That task just got that much more difficult with the news that Mason Smith, LSU defensive tackle, is going to be suspended for the first game of the season for the NCAA. Um, so that's up to the defensive line to get pressure on Jordan Travis and make him make decisions that he doesn't want to make. But I think overall, and this might be kind of a cop-out answer, but it's just limit the mistakes. And that's really what shot LSU in the foot last season against Florida State. Two muffed punts. You had a block extra point, a blocked field goal, several just silly, dumb penalties. If they took all of those away, if you can just right a few of those wrongs, you probably win that game. So when you go into a game that I think is incredibly evenly matched, you've got two quarterbacks with Heisman hope. You've got two stout lines on both sides of the ball for both teams. You've got two head coaches that go into this season where they think a lot to prove and two top 10 teams preseason. I mean, just, I think this is a very evenly matched game. So what it comes down to is limiting mistakes, limiting dumb penalties, and don't turn the football over. That really, I think whoever makes fewer mistakes wins this game. It could be as simple as that. Yeah, that's a great recipe for success like you just mentioned. The special teams play always that third phase that gets overlooked and mm -hmm. is spent so much time on in every high school or collegiate practice that you see. And really the debut dud of Brian Kelly that upset so many LSU fans a year ago saying, look, I know we practice on special teams, but mm -hmm. it's one thing to have one failure, but to have multiple failures in one game. What do you think the chaos would be if special teams is a failure or there's special team blunders here in this game this week? My my heart's beating fast just thinking about it. <laughs> I'm starting to sweat a little bit thinking about special teams continuing to be an issue. Um, Brian Kelly removed Brian Pullian from his special team coordinating duties. Um, and he moved him to more of an, a CEO, GM kind of off-the-field role. John Jancic, outside linebacker coach, was also promoted to special teams coordinator. So, you know, you made a change at special teams coordinator. Um, LSU brought in Aaron Anderson, a transfer from Alabama, who's a New Orleans native, who, if, 
up Aaron Anderson, Edna Carr highlights because this kid was absolutely electric as a punt and kick returner. So looked into the transfer portal to try and bolster up some, some special teams personnel. So they did the right things in the offseason to try and make special teams just less of an issue. Because special teams was an issue against Florida State last year, and it continued to be a problem for LSU every single week. I, I look back at the season, I thought any kind of special teams mistake that you could make, LSU made it in at least one of the games last season. So if special teams continues to be an issue, I mean, I'll have to go to the top and look at Brian Kelly for that one and say you, you tried to make the, the changes, the necessary changes to improve special teams, but it's still not working. That's some sort of some discipline things that need to be addressed in practice. But I'm hoping that, hey, just take the gimmies. That's what I look at special teams. They're gimmies. Don't muff punts. You know, catch the punt, make your kicks, and, uh, and leave the penalties at a minimum, and they should be set up for success. On a neutral field at Camping World Stadium in Orlando, Florida, it's closer to Tallahassee than it is Baton Rouge. What do you think the crowd makeup's going to wind up being? If I know the LSU fan base, I know that they travel well and they travel rowdy. Um, you know, in New Orleans last year, it, it really did seem. You know, of course, there were there were more LSU fans. There was a majority LSU fans, but there were a good bit of Florida State fans at uh, at Caesar Superdome last year as well. So I'm not sure how much the location is really going to affect the game. Maybe the travel more than anything. LSU having to travel a further away than Florida State, obviously. But I know that this LSU fan base is absolutely fired up for the season, rightfully so, with all of the hype and all of the excitement surrounding this team from last season. So I think that this LSU fan base is going to travel strong. There's going to be some purple and gold RVs throughout Camping World Stadium. That is for certain. Well, Caroline, we cannot wait to see LSU beat Florida State this week because, look, I, I'm I, so. I can't be wrong on this show, all right? I've already been so overly <laughs> cocky, maybe abstantiated, but I'm, I'm just rocking with LSU so hard this year. I cannot have it all be wiped away week one. I cannot deal with that ridicule. So, Caroline, I'm going to stay locked on LSU with you, and how can the rest of our listeners – also, follow your LSU coverage and everything else that you're doing in sports. Yeah, yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at Caroline Fenton One. I'm live every day in Nashville from 11 to 2 p.m. Central on 1025 The Game. And of course, every day on the Locked In LSU podcast, you can find that on your preferred podcast platform or on YouTube. You can also check me out on SiriusXM SEC College Sports Radio. Caroline, we appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the week and good luck getting ready for LSU. Don't sweat too much. I will try not to, but I appreciate y'all. Enjoy week one. Thank you. Thank you. Double up on that deodorant. That was Caroline Fenton. Corey, how are you feeling? You you maybe leaning a more leaning a little more my way, rocking with LSU or I'm gonna rock with LSU in this game, without question. I will say this. I, I do think it is gonna be one of the more premier football games to start off your Labor Day weekend. And it's one that's must-see television. And it will ultimately, because it is in this week one, it's ultimately going to have, when we roll around to the college football playoffs unveiling in December, it's going to have a lot to do with who is unveiled and where they will be playing. 
for certain. And Brian Kelly, if he can start off 1-0 there and continue to have the success, the backing, the pressure's all on Brian Kelly, though, because you win a, a championship in baseball, you win a championship in women's basketball, and the pressure's on to win one in football, right. too. We're not talking about from an SEC standpoint. We're talking about the national. You think the game's going to be really close? I do. What, I do. I think it's going to be score? one to where you won't be able to get away from your screen. What's that score prediction? Too early in the week to tell. Okay. That's Too fair. early in the week to tell. That's fair. I'll say 24-20. LSU, 24-20. Yeah. Mine will probably be close to that. Okay. All right. Well, look, one more segment. We'll wrap it up, and then we'll toss it over to John, and hopefully he'll hit a hole-in-one on the Miller Lite Golf Report. But one more segment. It's a Monday edition of the Final Drive, wrapping it up right here. This is Will Herring, a member of the Auburn family. When I'm in Mobile, I listen to WNST 105.5. Welcome back to the final drive here on WNSP 105.5. And if you missed it, Alabama, the depth chart, if you wanted to hear it, Nick Saban, he, he commented a little bit about why he didn't want to reveal his depth chart to any of the media. The first time ever that Nick Saban has not unveiled a depth chart since being at Alabama. I know that... Um you know, your number one focus is not on the game. Uh, it's on the depth chart. And look, there's a lot of competition on the team. Uh, and when we put a depth chart out, you all think that's like final. Like this is like etched in stone that it's going to be this way forevermore. Uh, just because we come out of fall camp and that's where it is. But creates a lot of distractions on our team. Creates a lot of, um, you know, guys thinking that, well, this guy won the job now and I'm not going to play or whatever. And quite frankly, you know, we don't need that. Uh, and I want all of our players to continue to compete, to continue to compete for playing time, uh, to try to play at the highest level. And I don't want anybody on our team to think they're a backup player or whatever. Nick, he may not want people to think that they're a backup player, but ultimately you have starters. You have backup right. players. That's right. You have bench warmers. And, and then you have walk-ons. That's right. And look, it's it's clips like this. It's not being able to name a quarterback. It's coming out and saying, hey, don't aren't receivers supposed to catch balls? It's talking about lack of intensity. I am not vibing with this Alabama team this year, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I can see where the question marks are going to be and where they are going into that first week. I mean, one good thing is that my I will either be proven wrong or proven right in the second week of college football. Like, we're going to know very early on, depending on how close that Texas game is, whether a win or a loss, so many questions are going to be answered pretty early into the season so i'm sure at least myself i i'm happy about that and i know alabama fans are either really happy about that or potentially dreading week two 
looking forward to it. Absolutely looking forward to it. Just like we're looking forward to tomorrow's show where we'll have Chris Gordy locked on the SEC. We'll go around and talk to him about all of the press conferences that went on today with coaches that are gearing up for this first full week of college football. Of course, we have South Alabama, their depth charts, no sh really no shocking issues there. Alabama will not provide us with one until game day, and Auburn's depth chart is already set. We'll be talking football tomorrow with Scott Hunter and Tracy Turner as well, so you don't want to miss what's going on on the final drive. Make sure you guys stay safe, stay cool, and thank you for tuning in here to the final drive on WNSP 105.5.